0: Precious Hallman is an educator, author, mother, and advocate for equity for all children. She currently teaches fourth grade science in Memphis, Tennessee, where she resides with her husband and their two sons. Recently, she published her first book, Parents, Children, Home, creating a supportive learning environment during a pandemic and beyond. As many parents with young children, who cannot get vaccinated just yet, who have anxiety over the upcoming school year and perhaps anxiety over the past school year, I hope this episode and her book can be a helpful resource and some comfort for you. We discuss her path and training to becoming an educator and her experiences as a teacher and a mother during the pandemic. We also talk about specific things teachers can do to get ongoing support and professional development to build trust, communication, and accountability for themselves, their students, and families, and how we the public might recognize and value the work educators do every day. This is Early Care for Every Kid, a podcast for people who want to make learning, living, and loving more harmonious for everyone. I'm your host, Danielle Ahn. Each week, I interview fellow parents, educators, advocates, and community leaders who care for and work with young children and families. I share their experiences, insights, and specific actionable tips on how you could help make the world work better for everyone. Welcome to our conversation with Precious Hallman. Welcome, Precious. You have a passion for children and all people. And you've been an educator for 17 years. How did you come to seek out or fall into education as a career?
1: Well, originally, as I mentioned before, I was a biology major. I always had a passion about science and animals and everything that involved science. And it was a huge conflict with being a college athlete and traveling so much. For my first two years of undergrad, my freshman year and my sophomore year, that's when I realized, okay, this is not going to work with having labs at night and I'm not here. So I then switched my major. I changed my major after speaking with my parents and they were fine with it. And I knew that I already love children. I love working with them from many years of Sunday school and vacation Bible school and working with children in my community and also in community service activities. And so I was like, well, why don't I go? Why don't I become a teacher? Um, I love teaching. I love facilitating. I love people. And so that's how I came to become an education major.
0: In your undergrad years, is there a lot of hands-on interaction and hands-on in-classroom training as part of the curriculum to become a teacher?
1: Yes, and at Stillman College, they had a really renowned program, educational program in the practicum years in which you had to actually complete a practicum in every single area. So even PE, because they were saying, what if you go to a small area and you're at a school where you have to teach during the day and you also have to teach PE at some point during the day. Right. So it was glad I had the practicum with physical education. I had a practicum with special needs children, actually functional skills where you have to teach them just the basics, like drinking out of straw. So I had a practicum with them as well. And mm-hmm. so each practicum will last anywhere from six to eight weeks where you have an experience in all sorts mm-hmm. of classes. You had to have a practicum in music where I was working with a music teacher all day with students and just learning the different instruments mm-hmm. and notes. It was a wide variety because they were saying, OK, you never know what your experience is going to be out like once you get a job as a teacher. And so I really love that part because it made sure that you were prepared no matter what direction in which your educational career went in, you would be prepared.
0: hmm. You are a fourth grade science teacher Mm -hmm. right now. So I uh, understand that your biology and your science and love for nature and animals probably played into this specialization. Mm -hmm. Do teachers, especially in elementary school, do they get to normally choose their specialization or is it assigned?
1: Oh, it typically is assigned, but they will ask you which you prefer. You know, sometimes it's just what they have available and you're trying to get your foot in the door. So you may just choose to teach reading or math or you may have to teach all of the content area, which I had to do a couple times throughout my career. But for the most part, you know, they give you the opportunity to choose. And then once you choose that, sometimes you may end up having to move. Um, In my case, my first year, I taught first grade for a semester. And so I taught all subjects, but then Mm -hmm. it was a K-8 school and my principal really wanted to keep me. And he was like, okay, so the next year I only have a sixth grade AP class available for you. And at that time I was teaching reading language arts. And he was like, well, you will have this advanced placement class and then Mm -hmm. you'll have a couple others. But he was saying, that's all I have. So do you want that? And I was like, sure, I'll take it. And so that's how I move from teaching all subjects to then teaching reading and then now in science. So kind of full circle with everything mm-hmm. that I actually love, you know, the ELA and literature piece and then also the science piece.
0: Yeah. And I think that's such a, a necessary skill for teachers to learn. Uh, in their training and also as they are teaching out in the real world. Because like you said, you really never know which community you might find yourself in and what the particular community's needs might be, whether it's grade level or Mm -hmm. subject matter. (laughs) I understand um, from our previous conversation that you also come from a family of educators and community leaders. Could you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: Well, my father, um, he was a long-term history, high school history teacher and coach as well, but he has a passion for history. And my mother as well. My mother has taught primarily in a church setting. And most recently she teaches a, um, now that she's retired from social work, she teaches a parenting class. And so what it does is really preparing parents You know, helping them to become better parents, but also helping them to understand their children at all ages, because the parents that come to her program, they have children ranging from age five all the way up to age 18. And so just really trying to Mm -hmm. keep them connected, because, you know, once our children become teenagers, it seems like they're, you know, we're out of touch with where they are at that time and what their interests are, you know, as they get older, they change. And so that program is really close Mm -hmm. to and dear to her heart right now as she's helping them, in that community. And, and you know, it's also an opportunity for them to have a family meal every night because they provide the, a meal on that night. So they sit down as a family, which is something they may not do if they're at home. And so they have a family style meal and then they break out and go to their mm-hmm. own individual classes and then come back. Um, my dad actually was an educator for 30 plus years. In some form or another, he went from being a history teacher to being a school counselor. And then he also transitioned into administration as assistant principal and principal. So I always had that love. And then now I have cousins that are teachers across the United States that are teachers and loving the career. Mm -hmm. So it's, as you stated, it's throughout my family. Mm
0: -hmm. I think the desire to be of service Mm -hmm. And, and just natural curiosity and love for people, children, I think that is probably the greatest driving force for somebody to want to become a teacher and to teach and lead mm-hmm. and mentor. You are on the instructional leadership team. So what kind of ongoing support is essential for teachers as they continue to learn and grow alongside their own students?
1: I think really just having someone there that you can lean on for a lot of teachers, you know, they don't necessarily want to go to their building administration, their principal, their assistant principal and say, well, I'm really struggling in this or for them to come in and see that they're really struggling with it and then feel like they're um inadequate to, mm-hmm. but you know, to some point. Mm-hmm. So I feel like just having an advisor or a coach, and they're also called at times called a manager, someone that you can actually go through and say, okay, will you come into my classroom? And will you just observe this part of my lesson and give me feedback? You know, I think it's really just having a relationship with someone where you know, okay, this person is not judging me. Mm-hmm. You're not coming in, you know, to try to get me or, Give me this feedback just so they can cross off a box. But actually having someone Mm -hmm. that actually cares about my progression as a teacher, you know, because as educators, educators want to be the very best educators they are. And I think Mm -hmm. many people may not understand that, but teachers are constantly critiquing themselves. The feedback that they get from someone that they know that genuinely cares about the student and about their progression as a teacher is key. And so that's what the instructional leadership team allows us to do. It allows me to support teachers at my school who teach the same subject, but may be new, right? And just trying to figure out the ins and outs of education, the nuances, you know, managing their time. Some of it is just time management and some of them is just preparation. So it's different parts um, to their career that they may be struggling with at that moment and just having someone that they know Um, That it also teaches because I'm a teacher as well. So they know, Okay, she understands what I'm going through. Either I've been there before or it may be something that I'm actually struggling with right now. And so having the opportunity to go in, give them positive feedback and then walking with them through the process to improve in that particular area. So I think that that's the biggest thing where it comes to supporting a teacher, having someone that they can always go to and ask the questions or get feedback or someone just to, um, sometimes it's just venting. You know, if I'm frustrated, I had a frustrating day, just having someone that I can go and talk to and get it all out and then just start over fresh the very next day. I think that's the most important thing.
0: Would you say that all schools provide that kind of internal support system among teachers and peer groups, or is this unique to your school?
1: I think every school system has some version of it, right? It may have a different name. I know most new teachers are given a mentor teacher, but that may end, you know, after their first or second year. And so it's important for them to be able to have this throughout their career. Even for me, being an educator of 17 years, I need that as well because you never really reach a point where you think, you know, I'm amazing people can tell you that, but there are still areas in which you will struggle with. And the students are different these days. (laughs) The children that we have these days are totally different from children before in the eighties and the nineties and before then, and even in 2000, they're, you know, they're different. They play a lot of video games and maybe watch them or TV as opposed to children in the past spending a lot of time outside. So you have to understand the generation as well that you're teaching. And so Mm -hmm. I think that most school system has Mm -hmm. it, maybe not so much in maybe the rural areas, those smaller towns like my hometown, Mm -hmm. but in most of the cities and inner city schools, they have that support throughout a teacher's career where they always have that accountability. Mm -hmm. And I think that's key.
0: That kind of accountability and also a support Mm -hmm. network where you feel like you can safely go and seek feedback without Uh, Fear of it affecting your performance review Mm -hmm. or job security, right? Right. What kind of advice might you give to teachers who seek that kind of mentorship or support who may not feel like they have that in their current school system Mm -hmm. for them to advocate for themselves to seek out that kind of mentorship and relationship?
1: Probably I would tell them to start where they are. Start with those teachers, like maybe friends that they have that teach, maybe not even in that same district, maybe in another state. Two of my best friends teach in two different states. I'm in Tennessee. One of them is in Alabama. Another one is in Mississippi. So they may want to start with those people they know, whether in their district or not. And even those teachers that they have formed relationships with, because like my school, we're like one big family. And so you can go to anyone that you mm-hmm. think that may have something down that you may not, something that you may be struggling and maybe they've mastered it. So I would think also those communities within their mm-hmm. school with teammates or maybe teachers that may teach that same subject, but in different grades, maybe in the K-2 teachers, maybe teaching something mm-hmm. that maybe the 3-5 teacher needs to master as well. And so I think just networking Within your school and networking within your school system, because mm-hmm. when we have professional development, as we talked about, I facilitated for before there are teachers in my sessions that are from schools all over the district. And so even though we're all in the same district, we're all at different schools. Mm-hmm. So that's the opportunity to network as well you can start have your own group. Now that we're using Microsoft team, you can have a team created where you add those teachers from other schools and you all have the opportunity to get together maybe once a week or biweekly or even once a month. And so I would say just try networking with other teachers in your area or that you know.
0: I think that's great advice. I think begin where mm-hmm. you are. And seek out the people that you can connect with, with that same goal. I think that's great advice. And the pandemic has made remote learning the Mm go-to and an actual very useful tool. I wanted to ask you how that's been going for you this past year whether you're in the school room or <laughs> if you're behind a screen as well?
1: Well, it's been going well. And funny you should ask that because I just completed my first week is going back into in-person learning. And so- mm, Congratulations. Um, thank you. So we started here in Memphis. We started in August 31st, which is about three weeks later than we would have started. And so we were all virtual mm-hmm. the entire time up until last week. And for me, I'm a big component of forming relationships with parents and students throughout my career, mainly after I became a parent. I realized the importance of having that support and the parents having a good relationship with the teacher because it's going to benefit the child all the time throughout the year. They have a much more Mm -hmm. successful school year if they have that support. And so my main thing has been consistency, that consistency, Mm -hmm. that relationship, trying to build that because the students show up when you have a relationship with your teacher and your mom or your dad and your teacher have a relationship. They're going to be there consistently every day. They're going to be logging in. They're going to be excited about learning. They're going to have that accountability piece as to turning in their work and really striving to do their best. And we had finally mm-hmm. mastered teaching from home. And then now we're back in the school, but we're still yes. not, you know, walking around teaching. We're still teaching online. So now we have students in the building and we also have students mm-hmm. that are at home because those parents that opted to for their children to learn virtually this year, the school district is honoring that for the rest of the year. And so I love that, especially for my own boys. I asked them, what would they prefer? They wanted to stay home. And so I was glad that I could do that because I know that's not the reality for every parent or every educator. So right. now that we're in the building, you know, it's our new normal. But mm-hmm. I would say that we had a successful first week back.
0: That kind of consistency and accountability at home and engagement from Mm -hmm. the family to make it not like, hey, did you do your schoolwork? Let me see. Not like a Mm -hmm. control and command kind Mm -hmm. of watching over your shoulder, but Mm -hmm. as a way to keep the conversation going (laughs) and the engagement and joy for learning. Also, so that the child doesn't feel like he or she does not have the support at home if they needed help. How do you ensure that the parent's are aware of any issues that could be prevented and how do we foster Mm -hmm. that environment? How do you get the parents engaged?
1: I would speak as a teacher and also as a parent.
0: Yes, please. Um, So I
1: think as a parent, (laughs) you know, so that you don't seem like you're being that helicopter parent or standing over their shoulders, I would say have a regular conversation with your kids, maybe doing dinner, you know, start by asking them, how was their day? Mm -hmm. What was the best part of your day and why? And just having that regular, easy, breezy conversation with them you will see them start to open up. But of course, you're going to have to ask questions, especially if you have a teenager like I do. (laughs) You have to ask those questions that will lead to open-ended questions, those how or why questions. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you'll get yes, no, (laughs) and you know, that's it. So asking those questions and being genuinely interested Mm -hmm. in what they're doing. You know, if they have an art class and you say, show me some of your artwork. What did you do in art today? Why did you draw that? Um, What were you thinking when you draw that? Were you pleased with what your finished product was? Questions like that, because a lot of times our children do want to share with us. We're running around. We're so busy, but they really do want to share, especially if it's something that they're proud of. You know, they may have had an assessment that day and they made a A or B, you know, and they may not share it with you at first, but if they see that you're interested and you're going to be asking them these questions each day, though they may seem annoyed at first, (laughs) later on, you will see that they are looking forward to um, you asking them and being genuinely interested in what they Mm -hmm. did that day in school and how are they progressing. And then as a teacher, I would say, just being consistent with your communication. Mm-hmm. There are so many apps. For my youngest son, he has his teacher has the Class mm-hmm. Dojo app. And so she sends out messages just to me, but she also sends out messages mm-hmm. to all of the parents in the classroom as well. And so that's how she and I communicate. But she also has my phone number. Mm-hmm. So she called me one day last week just to make sure that she knew how he was going to be receiving education for the rest of the year. So whether he was going to be in person or was he going to remain mm-hmm. home for virtual learning? So I would say for teachers and parents, you need to have that communication mm-hmm. system for my parents. We send emails to them. We also see em- emails to the students because some of the parents don't have email addresses or they have email addresses that aren't active. And so um, mm-hmm. sending it not only to them, but also right. sending to the student, because some of the parents will check their children's email addresses for school. And so just sending out multiple ways. We also Mm -hmm. have a grade level Facebook page that we've added all our parents to. And we also have Class Dojo. And so we'll send our communication in multiple ways. And I think Mm -hmm. that's important because a parent may not see an email, but they may see a text message or a Class Dojo because it's an app and it comes up, you know, on their phone as a text message. So. It's there for them to see at their leisure, even if they're in the grocery store or they're cooking dinner, you know, they can see it if they have their phones with them. So I think that's important as well, that consistent Mm -hmm. communication and also having multiple avenues to communicate with the parent.
0: I think a lot of parents, if they didn't already feel this before, especially during remote learning or homeschooling, that experience really solidified the fact that teaching is such an essential profession and calling. It's one thing to know something, the facts, the information, Mm -hmm. but if you cannot relay that to a learner, a student, in a way that is absorbable, that's just a lost opportunity there. What do you think makes a great Teacher, as someone who facilitates and encourages and inspires learning in children or people of all ages? What makes a great teacher and mentor?
1: I would say listening, being a good listener, also making yourself available. That helps because you have parents that don't work an eight to five, right? You have parents that work at night Mm -hmm. for them to have the feeling that they can still contact me. You know, I have my office hours and I have my planning time in my day that's set out for parent conferences, but I have parents, they can't make those times, right? And so just allow myself to be accessible and available for them. And they're always apologetic, but for years I've given out (laughs) my own personal phone number to parents because, you know, issue may arrive. It may just be, you know, a question about homework. And Mm -hmm. so just allowing them to feel free to contact me so they're not freaking out and they have their child and, you know, their child is freaking out because my mom is frustrated. So now the child is frustrated and they're not going to get anything done that night. So being able to reach out and ask the questions and I always say relationship, 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 forming those bonds with students, Mm -hmm. forming those bonds with parents. And it will get you a long way because parents understand, you know, once they know what's going on and they know you, it's easier for them to, if their students come home and and it's a story, they're telling them about what happened and it doesn't sound right. They know the teacher. So it's like, okay, well, let me call Ms. Hallman and see what's going on. So it (laughs) relieves a lot of stress off the parent because they're not, you know, trying to figure out (laughs) what their child is talking about or they're not frustrated or upset at something the teacher may have said or done because they already know the teacher and yeah. they know, okay, well, that doesn't sound like something that Miss Hallman would say. Mm-hmm. So let me contact her. And, you know, with them having that, that comfort and knowing, okay, if I contact her, she's going to get back with me. And that's my mm-hmm. thing within 24 mm-hmm. hours. And mm-hmm. hopefully I can get with them then if it's an emergency, but being able to communicate with them, I think that's key as well. And then just being open and transparent, too, with the parents about their child. If there's a concern about a child, you know, whether it's their behavior or whether it's their academic. If you have that relationship, the parent may be able to receive it from you and they have never been able to receive it from anyone else. Mm -hmm. So it's just how you relay that information to them. And if they have a relationship with you, then they trust you. That's huge as well. Trust, because when parents drop their children off at school, they want to feel comfortable. Right. As any parent, you want to feel comfortable They're in a safe environment. Mm-hmm. The people here love and care for them and they're going to do the very best for them as they would for their child. So I think all of those are key, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed, of course, their curriculum and all of that. That's why they're in school. So, of course, they're going to they want them to learn. But I think those are the fundamentals mm-hmm. of relationship between a parent and a teacher. It's just building a relationship and being able to be transparent, open, and communicate on a consistent basis. I think everything else falls in line. The learning will be there. That will happen. But I think those are the most important aspects of having that relationship with the teacher as a parent.
0: Academic learning, <laughs> grade mm-hmm. level learning, meeting the standards. I think those are all secondary, like you said. I think mm-hmm. the listening and the trust and the relationship building, creating a safe environment where the child feels safe yeah. to explore and actually mm-hmm. free up his brain to learn. I think that is, as right. a parent, I appreciate that so much when a teacher can do that. And I feel safe to drop off my most, our most yes. prized, our most <laughs> precious <part> cargo <laughs> yes, for hours to be able to yeah. do that sometime in the next year or so. I would love that. Yeah. I don't think any teacher in America really goes into the teaching profession to become financially rich. Mm -hmm. I think it's really a calling to be of service, to mentor and to be an Mm -hmm. influence, a positive influence among children when they have malleable brains. I think that's probably one of the yeah. <laughs> greatest reasons I think that I'm gleaning from you and many of the teachers that I respect go into that for. But my goal is to be able to help have more conversations about why aren't we, mm-hmm. why, why are we undervaluing? What are we saying as a society if we are underpaying right. and undervaluing all the work you know, and care and energy that our teachers are pouring Mm -hmm. into our next generation who are going to then impact the following generation. So, you know, while I appreciate that teachers have this love and this passion and compassion for people, I think it's a huge disservice to not invest more And that kind of investment is not just like, oh, ongoing professional development, like you had mentioned before, or let's say benefits or words like, oh, yes, we appreciate our teachers. But I think it has to come in really practical financial ways to really value and also attract the next generation of people who feel Called to do that challenge, challenging work. It's really Absolutely. challenging. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> it's really, really challenging work. <laughs> and to feel valued and compensated. Yes. I will let you speak more on that. Yeah. We can't just expect teachers and caregivers to be martyrs, right?
1: right. For a higher
0: right. sense of.
1: Right. As you stated, the profession of educators is so undervalued right now. And I think a lot of things that contribute to that, maybe uh instances that people have had. Um most times I would say it's a misunderstanding, but you have to be able to come to the table and just talk about it. You know, many of my parents, I always ask them when they're frustrated, okay, you know, now that we discussed it, how do we move on from that? How does it look going forward? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's important as well. There have been instances and. In, Just like in education, it's been instances in all professions where someone has acted unprofessionally. Mm -hmm. And because of those few instances that have happened in schools and maybe out of schools where teachers weren't being professional or, I guess, all the way committed to the profession and what it calls for. And it does cause for a lot. As you said, it can be very challenging. And so there's been times when teachers have made mistakes. And, you know, people kind of hold on to that. Are you referring
0: to um, instances that would make headlines in newspapers of inappropriate interaction between students and teachers? Yeah.
1: So those inappropriate relationships, maybe, or maybe a teacher did something that caused a child to get injured. You know, those are not every day. But, of course, when it happens it's huge because these are the people, as we stated before, that my child has been entrusted to, right? Mm -hmm. This is the person that my child is with eight hours a day, you know, and I want to trust that everything they're doing, they're treating them as they would their own children, right? right? And they're being professional. And so I think instances like that has caused teachers to be undervalued for the work Mm -hmm. that they do. But I also believe that there are opportunities for even that for school systems to do a better job of just speaking about their teachers often with the news station or what have you, because there are a lot of great things, but people don't generally know about them. Mm -hmm. You know, you have teacher of the year, you have teacher of the month, you have all of these great things that teachers are doing Mm -hmm. each and every day. But we don't have that public relation aspect where the community, the Mm -hmm. city, the world is seeing these amazing things that teachers are doing, all of the growth that takes place throughout the year. I have my doubt, I guess, pros and cons with state testing. But that state testing also gives you an opportunity to see how hard that teacher worked with that child, how much growth they received. You have students that are making gains in reading. Mm-hmm. two and three grade levels in one year. Mm-hmm. So I think also the public needs to know all of the amazing things that teachers are doing each and every day with children. I think that would help too on how the public views us as educators.
0: I think the idea that teachers are absolutely the most patient, <laughs> understanding and compassionate kinds of people, that's the profession yeah. that requires that, Mm -hmm. that kind of taking the time with the child. I think parents these days, not only as like, oh, just drop off your child or your baby, like let's park our child here for a few hours Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, while I can do what I need to do, all the things. I think, especially with all the angst around, is my child going to fall behind this academic year? How are they going to be measured academically? If anything came out of that conversation, is how much work teaching and educating and passing on lessons actually is. So I just want to say Mm -hmm. thank you, real quick. And (laughs) I would love to go into you mentioned testing before, Mm -hmm. but how do you think learning is truly measured? Like, how can we tell if a child is actually learning something?
1: Outside of testing, just your regular observations of that child. Typically, and teachers can see that without a test, you can see how a child, how they right. were performing when they came to you at the beginning of their year. And then you're able to physically see the actual growth that they make to the end of the year without a test, right? You're able to make observations, those informal right. observations or checks for understanding Just in having conversations with children, you can see how much they've learned. And even with my children, we can be out at the park and they can see something, a bird or a fish or something, and they can go into detail about what they've learned about that in class. Those are things that a test cannot tell you because every child, let's be honest, isn't a good test taker.
0: Exactly. You know,
1: as adults, we can say, okay, well, I wasn't a great test taker, but I learned that you know, and a lot of times it's not that the children don't know, it's the format of the test because there's so many different formats that you can give a child multiple choice, open-ended questions where they have to write their response. With the test, if it's just one format, it's hard for you to capture how much one child, every single child taking the same identical test. It's hard to capture what every child has learned in the course of that year. And with us having the COVID Mm -hmm. pandemic and being out of school, they're calling it nationwide the COVID slide where naturally every child is going to digress slightly in their education. And I think that's part of the huge push to get them Mm -hmm. back in the building. Mm -hmm. We're constantly teaching, but we also have to make up for those um, standards and what they would have learned from March to May. Really, maybe two months because, of course, they would have taken their state testing. Mm. You know, most states take it in April. And so they still missed a good month and a half Mm. or two of learning. Mm. It, again, goes back to the importance of school and education and being in front of a certified teacher. We commend the parents, you as well. Let me commend you and all of the parents that stepped up to the plate to try to educate their students once schools were closed.
0: Yeah, I think academically, I'm sure high school Mm -hmm. seniors going off to college or like where those grades really, really matter, whether it's the standardized Mm -hmm. tests that they have to take to qualify Mm -hmm. or like entrance exams, et cetera. I think those are huge. My kids are a little bit younger, actually much younger. So I'm not too concerned about the Mm -hmm. academic grade level. But I think there's so much more, you know, just like how to cope even or doing more housework around the home. I think my kids learn how to fold their laundry a little bit better (laughs) (laughs) and all of those things. So, yeah, I think children are learning in very different ways. I just want to echo also that even adults we all individually just express ourselves very, very differently, even the same idea. We might express it in visual arts mm-hmm. or or in a song or in dance or in a poem or like long-form sentences or whatever your genius is. I think it shows up in different ways. So I think it's really a compromise of sorts to ensure mm-hmm. that we are kind of learning and progressing along to offer that test as a way to measure but I hear you on like how it uh, misses the nuance and yeah. what the children are actually learning. I just worry that these kind of how to test better, the testing techniques mm-hmm. might kill our children's natural uh, joy or curiosity for learning. And
1: creativity as well. Yeah, How do we not do
0: that? <laughs> how do we keep that natural spark in like that all babies and young children have?
1: hmm I think one important thing is for teachers not to teach to the test. And I Mm -hmm. know it's a lot of pressure as an educator to do that. But I feel like the strategies you're teaching throughout the year should not be just geared to the test. You should be teaching strategies in general, life strategies, Mm -hmm. strategies in which they Mm -hmm. will use even if they were filling out a job application, strategies on how to just Mm -hmm. like using context clues, being able to read a sentence and figure out what a word means, even if you don't know. It's those basic strategies. Even though they're labeled test-taking strategies, there are so many strategies in which you can teach them that will help them benefit on the test, of course, but it mm-hmm. also help them benefit in other facets of their life as well. Just basic life skills as well. I think life skills is a huge part in that it's not in the curriculum, neither is cursive writing anymore. <laughs> but those are all the skills that students need to know, right? And I think the newspaper is written on the eighth grade level. So if we can just get our students, those students that may have progressed in their grade level, but may not necessarily be the strongest reader. If we could just focus on getting them to at least being able to read on eighth and ninth grade level, you know, that will still drastically change the trajectory of their career in the future or their job, whatever they decide to do.
0: That's so interesting. And I really appreciate that point because I hadn't really thought about test taking mm-hmm. as achieving more than just measuring life skills. I can even just think managing your time yes. or figuring out what is being asked, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like that kind of literacy so that you can decipher information and know how to get information to make the best decisions for yourself. I hear you. Wow. I, thank you. <laughs> thank <laughs> you for that point.
1: You're welcome. <laughs>
0: I know you mentioned earlier, sometimes teachers also need to vent. When things mm-hmm. get tough for you, how do you recharge? As someone who has so much on your plate with mm-hmm. two children mm-hmm. in during a pandemic, remote learning from home, as you are uh, conducting your instructions online and managing mm-hmm. just the family, how do you recharge?
1: Besides the occasional trip to the nail spa. <laughs> <laughs> or to grab or get a massage. Um, really just um, having time to just be, just pulling away, you know, having some quiet time alone, um, mm-hmm. writing helped as well. And I think that was why I was able to actually get my book written during the pandemic, because I had a lot of time other than the occasional road trips or taking the boys to the park. I had a lot of time to reflect and think. But for me, it's just pulling away and simple things, maybe watching something on television or reading or writing, journaling, reading the Bible, just several different ways. Sometimes just working out. That's one of the huge things when I have a very stressful day. I used to go straight to the gym. Now I'm working out at home. So just having those moments to pull back and also setting boundaries. I know for a lot of teachers, they're working 24 seven And they can neglect themselves Mm -hmm. as mothers do as well. We do that as well. We neglect ourselves and our health, especially our mental health, because we're always taking care of other people or thinking about other people or planning for other people. But I think also setting those healthy boundaries, maybe setting a cutoff time every day that I'm not going to work. Of course, some nights you're going to have to work late on a project, you know, just having boundaries like after eight o'clock, I'm not checking my email. <laughs> I'm not responding to any messages. I'm not calling anyone. I'm not receiving any calls. Setting those healthy boundaries. For me, one of the things, the most important things I did when I became a mother and as they got older is just once I leave work, I leave work, right? I don't think about it again until the next morning. Mm-hmm. But once I drive off that parking lot, then I'm not going to give work anymore of my time and my energy, I'm going to give it to myself and my family. I think just setting those healthy boundaries will help a great deal Mm -hmm. for educators, for moms, for everyone, right? Just having some healthy boundaries where you learn how to say no or having a cutoff time. Definitely having a cutoff time has helped me to recharge and just Mm -hmm. to get some more energy so that I will be able to do it the next day. I want to give my students my best, just like I want to give my family my very best. That's been the key Mm -hmm. for me.
0: Mm. Yes, I agree. (laughs) You said it very well. Thank you. I just also want to highlight the book that you have that's available. It's Parents, Children, Home, Creating a Supported Learning Environment During a Pandemic and Beyond. You recently published this. Congratulations. Thank you. Could you tell me what motivated you to write this book?
1: I always had the dream of writing a book, even before I had my children. I thought that it would be a children's book. And then as the years passed by, not really having the time to write it or think about it. One time I thought it would be maybe a spiritual journal that you can read and then write your thoughts. So it's changed over the years. But then during the pandemic, I realized that there was a lot of parents looking for ways in which to keep everything normal. Right. In a time where there was so much uncertainty and everything was unpredictable. Where could parents go to try to make sure that they kept their normal in their home? And we're spending so much time together. But how do we make the most of the time in which we spent together all those months and weeks in the house? And so just trying to be supportive of their children because we weren't going through this just parents or adults, but children were as well trying to figure out what was going on. And there was so much between the pandemic, the anti-racist movement. It was just so much politics, getting ready for the new president. For us, it was difficult, right? But especially for our children. And so it was opportunity just to really help parents because you have parents at home trying to figure out, okay, so how do I talk to my child about what's going on in the world right now? what if my child is anxious? I'm anxious as well. So how do we approach that when I'm anxious and they're anxious and I'm trying to be the best parent I can be, but I don't know how to, because this is new for me as well. And then education, right? They're at home, all of a sudden they're not going to school every day and they're not learning. So how do I keep them from Digress and How do I keep them from going into depression because they don't have that peer interaction with their friends and with their classmates? So I wanted really to provide some guidance to parents to help them during this time, a time in which they didn't know what to do. I mean, I was struggling myself each day especially when you're on a routine yes. of getting up and getting your kids out to school, you're going to work. And then you're going to the gym and all this, the gyms were closed. The schools were closed. <laughs> Office buildings mm-hmm. were closed. So mm-hmm. what do we do now? And for some parents, they still had to go to work mm-hmm. during this time. And I thank them. They were essential. Mm-hmm. What do I do if I'm working during the pandemic and my children are at home? You know, a lot of children were at home alone or they were with grandparents or family friends. And so I just really wanted to provide some guidance for parents to let them know it's going to be okay. I was going through this as well with them and just letting them know they had something that they can fall back on.
0: And offer really practical Mm -hmm. information to kind of bridge some digital divide. Right. I also didn't know where to go for resources. (laughs) I just want to read one quick part of your introduction, where I really appreciate that you say, "'I do not claim to be an expert in health, social-emotional wellness, or psychology. However, I do possess the heart, experience, and wisdom of someone who's passionate about educating children, strengthening families, building relationships, and fostering mentorship.'" And this is truly a book where it encourages and makes it easy for the laughing, listening, and learning to continue. So Mm -hmm. I I encourage the listeners to check that out. I am going to include this in the show notes. And I just want to ask one last question. While we have our children, what is the greatest lesson that you wish to pass on to your children?
1: Oh, wow. The greatest lesson. I would say that Everyone is somebody. You know, so many people are overlooked because of how they look. Maybe their clothing, maybe their skin color, maybe their job title. I've made it a point that when I meet people, I ask them, what's their story? Because so many times people ask you what you do Mm -hmm. and whatever you do. It's great, right? If you're a stay-at-home mom, that's amazing. I wish I could do that. (laughs) I wish I could be a stay-at-home mom. And I've actually contemplated it twice. Each time when I was at home nursing my boys, I contemplated becoming a stay-at-home mom. So I feel like um, so much is put on what we do for a living as opposed to who we are. I feel like everyone has a story. And you can learn some from their story, right? I would say that's the greatest lesson aside from trusting God and doing his work while we're on here on earth, definitely valuing people, all people, regardless of their background and their ethnicity or the language they speak or where they're from, just valuing people because everyone is important. Everyone is somebody. They are not little people. It's just people. (laughs) So I would say. That's one of the greatest things that I would like to pass on to them.
0: And I'm sure besides your two sons, all your students and even the families that you meet will probably get that from you, just in how you um, interact and (laughs) listen and care and pay attention. So I really honor that and I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Precious. You're
1: so welcome. Thank you.
0: Thanks for joining me, Danielle, on for this episode of Early Care for Every Kid. I hope this episode gave you some specific ideas for how you might better support our children and teachers, and perhaps even yourself as we carefully go into the next school year, whether it's in person or homeschool or remote learning. You can find out more about Precious and her book at Early Care for Every Kid. .org/7. And if you haven't already, go ahead and hit the follow button wherever you're listening to subscribe to the podcast. Till next time, take care.